I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Leslie Dodson. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, September 8th, 2015. Coming up, we get a preview of The Book of Life on the Edge, The Coming of Age of Quantum Biology, with co-author John Joe McFadden, a molecular geneticist. Also, artist Monica Aiello joins us to discuss STEAM. That's the intersection of science, technology, engineering, art, and math. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. People who grow up on dairy farms rarely develop asthma or allergies. It's probably because as children, they breathe air containing bacteria and fragments of bacteria. For years, immunologists have suspected that these bacteria reduce immune system flare-ups, which can cause asthma and allergies. An international group of scientists in Europe showed for the first time that chronic exposure to a low-dose bacterial toxin, or farm dust, protects mice from developing asthma that's induced by house dust mite, or HDM. Specifically, they found that the bacterial toxin reduced the production of immune system proteins that increase HDM-induced asthma. The researchers identified a key enzyme in lung tissue that mediates the protective effect. In humans... The genetic variant of A20 correlates with increased susceptibility to asthma and allergy in children growing up on farms. The researchers concluded that the farming environment protects people from developing allergies by modifying the communication between lung tissue and immune system through A20 induction. Although we can't, or may not all want to live on dairy farms, we can take kids to a variety of environments, like farms, while they are young, to broaden their exposure to different immune system activators. This work was reported in the journal Science last week. A CU Boulder scientist will help develop the satellite science agenda for the United States for the next decade, extending CU Boulder's leadership in geosciences. Dr. Walid Abdullahi is a professor of geography at CU Boulder and the director of the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences, or CERES. He'll co-chair a high-profile national committee that will develop the country's priorities for observing Earth's atmosphere, oceans, and land surfaces by satellite. Along with his co-chair from the University of Maryland, Abdullahi will lead the Decadal Survey for Earth Science and Applications from Space, which is conducted by the National Research Council. The survey will help federal investments, will, it will guide federal investments in satellite science technology. Now, every 10 years, NASA and other federal science agencies ask the Council to look a decade into the future and prioritize the research areas and new observations that will be needed for the next 10 years, as well as the missions required to meet those priorities. So that's the Decadal Survey for Earth Science and Applications from Space. And we're due for a new one. The first survey was released in 2007, and it's about to lapse. The new Decadal Survey will guide satellite science at NASA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, the U.S. Geological Survey, and other federal agencies from 2017 to 2028. 
Now, Abdullahi will spend the next two years co-leading a team of dozens of scientists, engineers, and policy experts from around the country. They'll look into how to improve such things as weather forecasts and space-based observations that will help researchers understand changes in climate, freshwater resources, and other environmental variables. By the way, Dr. Abdullahi served as NASA's chief scientist in 2011 and 2012, so he's familiar with the agency. Ceres, which he currently directs, is a partnership between NOAA and CU Boulder. And on the science calendar this week, at 6 o'clock tonight, Cafe Sci Boulder will host a talk on the geologic perspective on climate change. Dr. Bronwyn Koenigke, a postdoctoral fellow at CU Boulder and Oregon State University, will talk about how climate change today differs from climate change in the way distant past. For instance, geologic records show that the Earth's climate has changed many times in the past. And some of those ancient events coincided with natural emissions of greenhouse gases. Dr. Koenigke will discuss what we know about past climate change and how it applies to our understanding of climate change today. The event will be held at West Flanders Brewing Company at 1125 Pearl Street in Boulder. Dr. Koenigke's talk will begin at 6, but arrive at 5.30 if you want to order food. listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. This past summer, Life on the Edge, a book about the frontiers of quantum biology, was released to U.S. audiences. How on Earth correspondent Kendra Kruger caught up with one of the co-authors, John Joe McFadden, to talk more about the book and the weird science of quantum biology. It was once believed that life was not much different from a steam engine. Thermodynamically, a steam engine utilizes the random jostling of millions of gas particles to produce a much more orderly function, say, driving a train forward. Life was believed to function much the same. Our cellular machines deriving order from chaos. But this was before we knew what laid beneath the thermodynamic world, which is the land of quantum physics where strange things like particles moving through walls or things being in two configurations at once can exist. Scientists are now beginning to see that life may permeate through the thermodynamic world and meet the quantum land right on the edge. Life on the Edge. It's a book just out this summer in the U.S., on the coming of age of quantum biology. The authors, colleagues at the University of Surrey in the UK, are Jim Al-Khalili, professor of theoretical physics, and John Joe McFadden, professor of molecular genetics. I called up McFadden, who reiterated for me how enzymes happen to be a great example of how the old steam engine paradigm is falling away. McFadden says how enzymes rely on tunneling tricks to connect with the quantum engine that lies below. So enzymes, first of all, are the, the kind of workhorses of life. They make every single molecule in our body and the body of every living organism, and they keep us alive. So they're extraordinarily important for life. And um, how it was 
thought that they work, and they certainly do work in this way, as well as uh, I'll talk about in a moment the quantum way, but um, they use the same kind of chemistry as the kind of chemistry that we might describe as being in a steam engine. It's the chemistry of uh, billions and trillions of particles bumping into each other and interacting in ways that wipe out the weird quantum stuff. So you get uh, kind of bulk reactions. And this kind of thermodynamic chemistry was thought to underlie life. Life was just a particularly complex example of this thermodynamic chemistry. But what's been discovered recently is that enzymes also operate some of the quantum uh, trickery that is found at the uh, molecular level. For example, uh, both electrons and protons that are manipulated by enzymes can do a trick called quantum tunneling, whereby they disappear from one point of space and appear at another point of space without visiting any of the in-between points. So it's a kind of dematerialization at one point and a materialization at another point. And that's, now, that's not really the kind of chemistry that we expect to see. Another great example in the book involves one of the most energy-efficient processes known to date, photosynthesis. McFadden describes how the efficiency is due in part to the absorbed photon's ability to quantumly walk its way to its destination. The energy in photosynthesis is actually using another quantum feature called quantum coherence. And uh, what this allows it to do is to find the most efficient route from where the energy is picked up from a photon of light to where it needs to go. And it finds the most efficient route by simultaneously traveling along all routes. So it's, uh, it, it goes in multiple places at once and kind of uses that capability to find what's the most efficient way to go. So, and that, as I said, is responsible for the first step of photosynthesis, which makes trees, grass, and, and via the animals that eat grass, beef, and everything else. So it's extraordinarily important to uh, all life on our planet, and it seems to depend on quantum mechanics. But what about the deeper questions of life? What is it? Where does it come from? McFadden postulates that life's ability to to utilize the ordered nature of quantum phenomena may be what sets life apart. I think um, um, this connection between uh, the uh, living organisms at a macroscopic level, at the level we can see in the level which they operate, and the molecular uh, world of uh, particles, protons, electrons that operate by quantum rules, I think that accounts for me it's it's a big part of the answer to the question what is life but what is it that makes it so different from everything else we see around us and i think that difference is that we are seeing aspects of quantum mechanics that we don't see in the inanimate world we don't see in other big things and i think that to me is a is a huge part of the answer to the question what is life and uh, where it came from that's a more kind of um, hard question to ask. It's still a big puzzle in biology that um, uh, the origin of life, um, how it uh, popped into, how it originated at three, three and a half billion years ago on our planet. We do speculate in the book, and we, I must emphasize there are mere speculations, that quantum mechanics may have been involved at that stage as well, that the ability of uh, quantum mechanical objects to be in different places at once, occupy different states at once, 
may have been involved to allow the, if you like, the progenitors of life, the earliest kind of life forms to try out different states, try out different answers to the question, what is life, as a weird kind of quantum uh, superposition, as it's called, a superposition of different states, different ways of doing things, that it may have allowed life to be discovered um, more rapidly than it, much more rapidly than it would otherwise have been discovered. Life on the Edge is a real treat for anyone ready to dive into the strange world of quantum biology. Definitely not suited for the scientifically queasy, it will take you into the nitty-gritty of cell biology and quantum mechanics, but folks, it's worth it. I guarantee that your mind will be blown, or at least quantum-tunneled to a new way of thinking. That was Kendra Kruger talking with John Joe McFadden. He's co-author, along with Jim Al-Khalili, of Life on the Edge, The Coming of Age of Quantum Biology. Good morning. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Leslie Dodson. Monica and Tyler Aiello merge visual art with science, creating artwork that references everything from astronomy to microbiology. One of Monica's main interests is to look at geologic processes from the vantage point of space and understand the solar system and capture it in paint. That interest in planetary science shows up in her mixed-media work, where she constructs paintings by layering paper, ink, gel, found objects, fiber, heat, water, and gravity, all to create strata and sedimentary layers that mimic the geomorphology of planets and moons. Her pieces range from topographical landscapes based on aerial views of the Earth to lunar landscapes as viewed from space. She and her husband work closely with Earth scientists and NASA mission scientists, including scientists involved in NASA's Voyager, Galileo, Messenger, and Magellan missions. Their collaboration with scientists, though, doesn't just inform their artwork. It is also part of their community outreach programs. For instance, Monica and Tyler run workshops at NASA and the Jet Propulsion Lab, as well as in Denver Public Schools. They co-authored Art and the Cosmic Connection, a curriculum where students learn to decipher complex geologic stories using the elements of art, such as line, shape, color, and texture. Monica and Tyler Aiello's work is featured in an upcoming exhibition called Confluence at the Space Gallery in Denver. That work focuses on the Colorado River and the surrounding plateau. Monica joins us here in the studio. Thank you, Monica. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, Monica, how do you blend science, satellite imagery, and engineering in your work? Well, the root of my work really stems from an inherent passion for the sciences. And I am constantly reading, researching, dialoguing with science scientists to better understand the worlds of our solar system as well as our own home Earth. And then I've had 
critics comment that my studio sometimes looks like a chemistry lab because I do a lot of experimentation trying to capture geological processes through various manipulations of paint and materials. And so what I'm trying to do is really emulate or mimic the layering of strata and the geologic history of the planets and worlds within our solar system. Now, I understand you made up a word to capture these processes, and it's cosmorphology. And it, in essence, is to capture the commonalities between planetary science and terrestrial biosphere, as well as the connections between microscopic and telescopic. So you have some scale differences there um, and, and space differences. But, but explain to us, perhaps better than I can do, what cosmorphology is. I think you did a really great job <laughs> with that. Yeah, cosmorphology is a made-up word that really encompasses the dialogue that my husband and I have within our own artistic practice, as well as what we're trying to communicate with our audience. And our world and our universe is phenomenal and governed by a shared sense of physics. And if you dig deeply, you see that what you, can, what you observe through a telescope so often mimics and mirrors what you observe through a microscope. And cosmorphology is really just a word we made up to encompass that investigation of universal form, that which we're trying to convey through our artistic practice, as well as what we're trying to, to really... Um, investigate through our education and public outreach. So it's a marriage of form, of concept, of content, and a broader picture of humans looking at the cosmos and finding pattern and connectivity. So then bring us down into the details. How do you create these conceptual or cosmorphologic landscapes in your paintings? Well, I think Io is a great example. So Io is the highly volcanic moon of um, Jupiter, one of the Galilean satellites. And I've been painting Io for about the last decade. My personal process involves in direct dialogue with a lot of Io scientists, those that were on the Galileo and Voyager missions. And these NASA scientists have been kind enough to sit with me answer my questions and help me decipher that moon. When I look at Io, it looks very biological from the remote sensing perspective of the images that Galileo and Voyager captured. And so in looking at Io and painting it, I am painting volcanoes, but these volcanoes often look like flowers or biologic forms. And so it almost looks like Monet's garden from a distance to me. And then my husband, Tyler, who's influenced by biology, chemistry, and more of the microscopic things in the universe, he addresses his forms and relating to Io from more of that comparison to the botany and biological aspects. So both of us are looking at a similar space, but interpreting in two different ways, which of course conjures up questions about life and origins. And as part of the process of, of creating the paintings, and you talk about speaking to scientists, reading the literature and the technical papers, why does that research information or that scientific information, why do you need that to inform your work? My background is really more in science. Um, I grew up in a family of mathematicians and computer scientists, and my father was actually a consultant with NASA. And so my first love was 
astronomy, astrophysics, and Carl Sagan was one of my heroes. And so for me, my content and intent is really the exploration of the science. But somehow I got the artistic gene and the artistic bug and felt that the best way that I could really communicate and enter into that dialogue was through artistic process. But for our work, we really kind of see the arts and sciences as two sides of the same coin. And our real drive in everything we do is really forging those connections and reintegrating those disciplines and dialogue. And I, I want to pursue this idea of integrating those disciplines, but I, but I want to ask you very specifically to describe for us how it is you build paintings, how you construct them. Okay, well, I'll give you examples of my newest work. So I'm doing a series inspired by the Colorado River Basin. It's actually the first time I've addressed Earth. And I'm doing that because Earth is a planet, and I've spent a lot of time doing planets and wanted to really come back to, to our own home and address it with the same type of process I've done with other worlds. I do extensive research. I read John Wesley Powell's book, John Waterman's book, both with um, an iPad going down Google Earth. And I really wanted to understand the, the basin, the issues surrounding the basin in contemporary life, but also the history of the strata that were laid down in the Colorado Plateau region through the many, many hundreds of millions of year history of that region. And so for me, being able to dissect how things were formed and how things evolved, then I went into the studio and started to develop different techniques to represent different aspects of the construction of those landscapes, as well as how those landscapes have been manipulated and sculpted by the presence of man. And let's talk about your involvement or your and Tyler's involvement in STEAM education. That STEAM, just to repeat, is science, technology, engineering, art, and math. So it's different from the STEM education we're so used to talking about. So why is the A important in STEM education? The A is important because I think the A gives STEAM, I'm, I'm sorry, STEM, creativity, innovation, and relevance. And if you think about our past as humans, the arts and sciences were not separate entities. That specialization really happened during the Industrial Revolution. But since the dawn of man, artists slash scientists were the folks that asked big questions they documented and observed the natural world around them, even going back to the caves of Lascaux. And of course, da Vinci is the ultimate example of that integration of art, science, math, and engineering. And so for us, we really felt that it was important for students to have a very transdisciplinary approach to the STEM topics to be able to encourage innovation and creativity within their investigations, as well as to make it relevant to their life, because often STEM can be very intimidating to students, and they wonder, how does this connect with me as a person, as a human, and adding the art gives that sense of relevance and curiosity. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Monica Aiello, and her work, along with the work of her husband, Tyler Aiello, will be featured in the Confluence Show at the Space Gallery on Santa Fe Drive in Denver. The show opens this Thursday, September 10th, and runs through October 17th. Thank you, Monica. Thanks so much for having me.
That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is yours truly, Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by Kendra Kruger. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from our very own Kendra Kruger. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Leslie Dodson. And I'm Susan Moran.